Hey, welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. As a warning, this podcast may contain content that some find triggering or difficult to hear. So we encourage you to hit pause, take a few breaths, or walk away for a while. Do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself while you're listening. As always, I'm your host, Hannah Fordyce from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. I'm here today with my dear friend and co-trainer, Nikki Osterhus. As Hannah said, uh, I'm Nikki, and I'm very honored and thankful to introduce today's guest. We're speaking with Ann Johnson. She's an incredible woman with decades of experience in social work, crisis intervention, abuse, grief, and trauma counseling. Welcome to the show, Anne, and we are so thankful that you're here. Well, thank you, Nikki. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you came into this kind of work. Okay, I will do that. And I think I'm going to tell you this way. I'd like to use my story a little more in detail so that as we move into talking about survivors and talking about victims, there may be some information and some life experiences that your audience can resonate and identify with. So having said that, I came into this work um, as a result of leaving a relationship in which I was confused, um, startled, um, overwhelmed as a Christian. And what I did is I found out it had a name, this relationship dynamic, and it's called domestic violence. Fast forward, as a result, I got myself back into school, did an internship, in shelters, learned domestic violence, the ins and outs, the nuances, and I began to identify closely with my own experience. It's a complicated field. Uh, there are a lot of avenues to figure out what is domestic violence, in particular, in the Christian community. So I went about getting a master's and domestic violence, the depth of it in the Christian community compelled me to get on my knees and I asked the Lord if it was his will. I am willing to work with the Christian community with domestic violence because of the inability when I went and asked for help to figure out how I was living under my roof. How could this be a Christian um, family relationship, love? I had no intention of separation or divorce. I was seeking help to understand The leadership did not grasp what I was attempting to uh, explain, describe. 
which I want to offer up at this point, because of the confusion, it's very difficult to make sense of the relationship. So what I did is I studied and I wanted to bring in to the Christian community a contemporary language in which to understand scripture, which to understand interaction, communication, love and respect. As the Lord would have it, lo and behold, I was offered a position at the YWCA Battered Women's Shelter in San Diego. It was a huge, huge insight and wisdom working in the shelter. And I'll say that because of one in particular motivation, reason, and dedication. Different people, different relationships, different places where people live. The women came in, <clears throat> ages, races. However, what I learned immediately, how come it was so difficult to explain what I was living. And that is because of a word pattern. There are patterns, there are themes. And when people ask for examples, what they want is some specific detail. And it's very difficult to give one detail or two details. They transfer into patterns and it's extremely difficult to explain. The Lord also provided another opportunity for me. And that was I moved out of the YWCA Battered Women's Shelter in San Diego to the YWCA as a coordinator for the counseling program. And it was in the counseling program there, there were three programs, the volunteer, mandated offenders, and the victim survivors. So with that, the Lord moved me to a place where I could understand mentally and spiritually uh, the depth of domestic violence. So let me say this. My foundation, working with women, uh, even offenders, is because I have a foundation in and for the love of Christ and the Christian community. Yes, I do use models of therapy, but the foundation is always scripture. And the foundation is this, the spirit of counsel. What do I mean by that? Similarly to Christ, active listening, attentive listening, focused attention, respectful presence. The heart is listening under the waterline to what a woman is saying. And with little effort, she's able to expose 
that which she's not been able to say, to have someone listen. And the first words I will say is, I believe you. I think your experience, Anne, echoes the experience of so many women in a Christian environment who've experienced abuse and and sort of come up across these unique barriers within their own personal faith as well as within their faith communities. And um, you had mentioned how abuse can be so hard to understand or spot or really um, even label it as abuse personally when you're experiencing it because it's these subtle patterns that sort of build on one another. And because my background is in psychology, I like to think about um, Pavlov and sort of this idea of a trigger and a response. And when these two things are paired together frequently, they create a pattern, right? Or this sort of um, behavior that occurs without necessarily cognitively thinking about it. And so when an abuser continually does small behaviors that are paired with their abuse, those small behaviors can be used as triggers for the victim where it could just be a look, it could be a tone of voice, it could be a thing they're saying, but it's been so long paired with a manipulation or with a punishment or with something else. So from the outside, it can be really hard to to see it or to recognize that um, these sort of subtleties are, are currents that are creating a power differential or power dynamic. One of the things that we've talked about in the past, and was this sort of dichotomy that also exists between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And you brought this up when you were talking about your own experience. How do we internalize um, what abuse is and also what freedom is? We may logically understand it, but until it becomes that true heart issue, it's really nothing more than a fact. Can you talk to us a little bit about the battle between head knowledge and heart knowledge and how that may show up in a victim of domestic violence and how that may impact their recovery or healing long-term? It's a great question, Hannah. And let me just start with this. Um, Men and women come in to a relationship with, with assumptions, dreams, goals. We also come in as Christians, and I'm redeemed. However, I still have old beliefs. And because we come in with basic hurts in a relationship, um, in fact, I have a, a list of them. If you don't mind, I would like to not misspeak, but this is what we come in with. We're disregarded unimportant. Now, this is internalized messages that we've had. Um, We're devalued, uh, abandoned. We have these fears. We're unloved. So we've never resolved these issues. We're working for more love. We're looking for the outside or our partner to meet our love burden needs, if you will. So we're using our head. That's what I mean by that. More of our head than our heart. Here, here is a bit about the offender, because it, it, it kind of flows. Um, head and heart. I've referenced over the years something that's called the bubble. And 
what this is, um, is actually from an offender who wanted to come to terms with his behavior. And <clears throat> what he said was, I think of my relationship with my wife as we are in a bubble. And what that bubble represents is a restricted independence for her. Incredibly um, restrictive. There isn't the freedom of voice, the freedom of ideas, the freedom of opinions, the freedom of dreams, the freedom of goals. It doesn't exist. What he was trying to explain is this. Um, if she has an idea, if she has an action she wants to take, an opinion that isn't mine, then his internal sense is that she's moving away from him. Now, this isn't for me. I read this. I can't own it. I'd love it. I know that this is accurate after themes and themes with offenders. But the idea is that this offender understood his insecurity, his fears about she moving away. But more importantly, he didn't want to feel. And as long as he could restrict her by any means, he didn't have to face himself. He did not have to look at himself. And I find that fascinating. So he's also working solely with his head and blaming the environment for his feelings, blaming her for his feelings, his emotions. The offenders know what they're doing and they make excuses. And as a victim or a survivor, I didn't know I was in a bubble. I didn't know consciously there was a restriction. And I think it's a long time too that the victim comes to understand that they're even in a bubble. They just know that, like you said way earlier, that they want it to stop. But I think you had given an example um, quite a while ago, uh, not in this podcast, but earlier, uh, just in that, you know, if there's a knock on the door or the phone rings, the behavior will stop. So it yeah. is true. I, I do agree and want to emphasize that. Yeah, it's true. They are aware and know what they're doing. And there's another interesting dynamic. If um, officers are called to the residence. Typically, <clears throat> there's been an altercation and she has been provoked and we don't use that word enough, provoked. So if that has occurred in whatever scenario, over and over again, officers come, she really is in an emotional, hysterical, way, attempting to try desperately to explain 
However, simultaneously, upon entering the residence, he is calm, collected, and of course, where are we going to interpret when he points a finger at her and says, can't you see what I'm dealing with? This makes me think a lot of the um, Gabby Petito case, if you followed that at all in the news. Mm-hmm. You had the chance to watch the video of Gabby on the on the officer's body cam. Um, she's in a state of me- mentally breaking down, basically. And then you watch her boyfriend and he is like, she's crazy. She has mental health problems. It's exhausting right. to deal with. You know, he's like making jokes while she's crying in the officer's car. And, uh, you know, a couple days later, he murdered her. And so it is this very interesting thing of abusive individuals, as we've, you know, I think all three of us have said now, are very much in control. And like, it becomes a habit. And sometimes they may not see it as being that intentional, because it becomes so natural, like, so second nature for them to keep doing these little behaviors that manipulate the situation to get them what they want. Their spouse or partner is is now doing what they wanted or caving to what they wanted or apologizing so they don't feel bad. And so it just becomes this pattern of behavior for them. Yeah. Um, and it's And it's a really hard pattern to break, which I think incidentally sort of plays into why it's so very hard to know when there's true repentance and to really see that behavioral shift that comes with repentance um, with abusers because had knowledge, it's easy to feel bad they got caught or, or to feel bad that something happened, but in their mind, they're not responsible for that thing. It was because they, they feel like she didn't do what I wanted or she didn't do this well enough or whatever. And that caused me to do this thing or this abusive behavior or whatever. Yes. It's always outside, external. If I'm uncomfortable internally, I've got to find a reason. It's outside. You bring to my mind repentance and remorse. Remorse is quickly, I'm sorry, a flowers dinner out. Um, I'll never do it again repentance. And the reason I can speak to this directly is because I've observed it. Repentance is first having offended God. A brokenness in the heart that brings the offender to his knees She's not even part of the forgiveness piece yet. It is solely between this offender and God. I was going to say, incidentally, the root of abuse is power and control, the desire to have power and control. Repentance is a submission of your power and control to God's. It's literally letting go of it. So when you think about true repentance, it's demolishing the root of abuse. So good, Hannah. So good. That is so, so good. very, very true. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as you mentioned, it's it's so easy to 
want to believe that I'm sorry or the treats or the whatever might be real and fall for that. But then here we go, if you don't mind, we'll slip into the church. This is a hard thing to say, but it's, I think it was my reality. So I'll say it, I'll own it. The church leadership also restricted independence. And I found myself in their bubble. And I'll say it just like that. Listening. Listening under the waterline. And if they have an opportunity to talk with the offender as well, and he says, well, everything great, everything. I mean, I do this, I do that. And what's wrong with her? And I, you know, can you take a, a closer look? Well, let me just say it to you this way. If it were really so that the life that they're living is a description as he explains it, what woman would ever want to leave that? What woman would ever want to seek help? And you know, the church leadership never asks that question. I haven't heard it once. You bring up a great point that although there are cases where someone will falsely accuse for abuse, in which case they're actually the abuser, um, it's, it's super rare. There's just very little benefit for a victim coming forward. If anything, there's an enormous amount of potential loss that they're facing, including the loss of their marriage, the loss of their community, the loss of their friends, the loss of their status. Like, it's such enormous odds against them that when someone comes forward, you should be erring on the side of belief and even if that was not the case, you should still be erring on the side of the belief as the church, because God always is for the oppressed. Always. He's always for the vulnerable. He's always for the victimized. Like it is our job to err on the side of protection. Mm -hmm. And so that really leads to that place of, of when someone comes forward, your, your first role as the church is just to listen to them. Just say, I believe you, and then listen, because they are the expert on their story and on their internal marriage culture. Mm -hmm. You're not. You're an outsider. Mm -hmm. Listen, pay attention, be humble, let them teach you about what's going on slowly in their relationship. And I think, too, just um, allowing yourself to have the, uh, the softness that comes in really believing and and loving on a person instead of immediately jumping at them with like legalism or or instead of trying to fix their life, right? Like I think we have a tendency to want to just shift the power from the abuser to us, kind of like shift the bubble from the abuser to the church. Like I can fix your life for you or I can fix your marriage for you instead of just loving them and empowering them to make wise choices and supporting them as they do that. 
So good. Um, it's interesting. God would have his way right now because I wrote a couple of sentences down. And, um, so I'm going to read what I wrote because you mentioned legalism. I did not have an agenda. I just want to be very clear. But hearing the word legalism, and as you explained it so well, Hannah, I am going to read a couple of things that I wrote down because I truly believe this. Legalism creates a mask of conformity, which makes the believer holy in his eyes and prevents him from coming to self-knowledge. And it, it's uh, the veil, right, over their eyes. And then I, I put a note down that legalism stresses willpower and the stress on personal effort. Here's your head. And it makes him or her unaware of their real feelings. Here's the heart. They're actually not living by faith, but self-evaluation. I can remember being in ministry, prison ministry, radio ministry. You know, there is some sense of doing something right as if there's a self-righteousness that's subtle, right? Speaking before people, pre presenting. There's something about the that fight, that contentious between the heart and the head. Um, and this arrogance, I guess. Just mm. gonna throw it out the way it is. But it has an awful lot to do with my effort. Me. Me, me, me. Mm -hmm. And that's more important than God on some level. I'm more important than genuinely in my heart, persuaded by God that he is. That's a hard thing to say, but it's true. And in the search, in seeking, there's one thing I have come to fully understand, I grasp, and it is this. I may tear up. <laughs> there is nothing I can do to have God love me more. What does that mean? I've done it. I received, accepted, and said yes to his son. That's everything. Mm -hmm. Not in my head, in my heart. And I now realize that there is nothing I can do to have God love me more. 
Yeah. Isn't that yeah. He loves you because he loves you. That's right. Now it's heart. Now it's the love. Now it's understanding that God is in love with me. God is in love with us. Oh, yeah. Heart knowledge. And everything flows from the head into the heart. I have some tears. <laughs> Oh, it's been a long journey. You've heard me say perhaps, and I'll say it now. Um, I love it. Julian of Norwich. <laughs> your sufferings become your blessings. And in the beginning, would I have ever believed that? I don't think so. Never. But I'm here to say to you now, all those sufferings have become my blessings. And clearly the Lord has used you <laughs> every bit of suffering and wounds uh, call, to call back, to grab the hand of another and say, come on back. Here's your heart, and God has used you in a powerful way. And Thank he, is, you. Uh, he has done that. He has done that in you. Yeah. What a gift. 100%. For me, I just say, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace, flat out. Yeah. Right? Here's something I'd, I'd kind of like to to say it, maybe wrap around everything. Christ says, if you drink from the water of the world, you'll be thirsty again and again and again, correct? Mm -hmm. But if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. You will not thirst. That's what Christ did in relationship with the Father. He was centered on the Father. He was satisfied internally with the Father. And he's teaching me that. He was satisfied with that water. Anytime I drip, from drinking that water, I thirst again because it's not satisfying and it's never enough. And it's transient. So, and when that happens, I recognize it. And that's what we do in domestic violence until we understand we're thirsting over and over and over again, you know, hungry to be fed from the world and what the world can give us and what people can give us. And like Christ, 
he, I, I have uh, ad adapted, well, attempting to adopt something with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was never discouraged, nor was he disappointed. Think of how he was treated by man, accolades, praise, and the very same people crucified him. Mm -hmm. He knew men, and he also knew where his satisfaction is. And Makes me think an awful lot of Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. And I think that that sort of ties it up with a little bow, the, the idea that when we really have the everlasting water of Christ, when we have the Holy Spirit pouring into our heart, yeah. that's what's going to flow out. And it's not going to be head knowledge and it's not going to be legalistic and it's not going to be excuses and it's not going to be controlling or manipulative behavior. It's going to look like Christ. And so how do we pursue that in a really real way in whatever capacity we're in, whether we're a survivor, whether we're a um, someone who maybe has unhealthy habits or, or whether we're part of the church and we have the responsibility to, to be soft, to listen, to love, to be like Christ. Amen. That's truth. The church leadership, their responsibility like an overview for you would be know about domestic violence, learn about domestic violence, get an understanding, a biblical perspective, a real biblical perspective on abuse, on healing, know what it is, um, know how to overcome obstacles that would stand in the way of listening to her, you know, learn this, become um, aware, want to become aware, a desire, mm -hmm. you know, and honestly, honestly, openly address this from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. I think most uh, churches would be really shocked if they talked more openly about domestic violence, how many people came forward to disclose. I assume it would be a lot because I definitely know in this line of work, um, I have people disclose to me all the time, all the time in all sorts of contexts um, because they know that I, I understand it, I guess. Um, and I think, and I think for the church, the, if we're going to tie this back into the idea of heart, sort of the, the big thing there is have a humble heart posture when you come to this subject. It is complex and it's messy and you're probably not going to get it right right away. But if you are willing to listen and if you're willing to learn and if you're willing to say we recognize that we have not necessarily dealt with this the best in the past, that we may still make mistakes in the future, but that we want to be better you will learn. Like if you just recognize your limitation and you have an openness and a willingness to pursue after understanding, you'll be you'll be in a good place. Like you really will move forward in in being a Christ-like advocate. That's so good, Hannah. That that's just so true. Um, 
after all these many, many years, um, it doesn't seem to be letting up. And I don't want to excuse COVID or any of that. It, it puts a stress on for sure. But the themes and the patterns and all of it are the same. The game is the same, whether there's a pandemic or not. To be a great advocate is to learn about it, like you said. Desire to know about it. Nothing is really pre preventing us from understanding it except ourselves. We make excuses like we didn't know better or we don't have time as a church to learn about it or we're focusing on other issues. But there's yeah. only so long we can sort of depend on these um, these excuses instead of stepping forward and, and recognizing our responsibility to to change, to do something different. And it's been just an incredible pleasure to chat with you today. Sure. Just sit at your feet and glean some of your incredible wisdom and years of experience. Um, and, and I'm just so grateful that you were willing to come on and speak with us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I mean that. Appreciate both of you. And um, yeah, distinction between the head and the heart. And I'm just going to offer this up. Thank you for your hearts. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, too, to our listeners. Um, you are loved. And thank you for sharing the space with us. Um, and ultimately, we are all, listeners included, so thankful that the Lord has met with us today. Thank you. Until next time. <laughs>